You're listening to the Midwest Marketing Orange Hour podcast with your host, Brett Matice. All right. Today I am joined by Dr. Brad Archer. Okay. That is how you would you like me for the whole podcast to enter? Like when I address you, should I say Dr. Brad Archer? Should I say Brad? Should I say Brad Archer, MD? Uh, what, what would be your like preferred method? Just, just, yeah, just Brad is Just fine. Brad. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I kind of figured that was going to be the case. So Brad is the chief medical officer at Monument Health here in Rapid City. Can you talk about what that entails and kind of how you got to be to that point? So that entails um, a lot of operational uh, oversight of the physician practices, as well as uh, trying to align uh, the physician governance with the operations of the organization. Okay, for sure. So when you first went to medical school, did you say, this is kind of what I'm hoping to be in, or did it take kind of a a windy path like a lot of people's careers seem to do? A windy path, definitely not something they cover in medical school. In fact, that was probably the uh, impetus to to move more into administration was the frustration regarding um, how healthcare is run, which they don't teach you in medical school, and you really don't see until you get out into practice. Oh, for sure. So where did you attend medical? Well, where did you do your undergrad? And then where did you decide to go to medical school? South Dakota State for pharmacy school. It was my undergrad. So I'm a jackrabbit. And then USD uh, for medical school because I had to. Okay. Why did, is that was like SDSU doesn't have a, a <laughs> right. next level? Yeah, yeah, I'm just kidding. Right. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a thing here in the state. You're either a, a jackrabbit or a coyote. I'm a, I'm a jackrabbit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there is definitely that that state divide. You're either <laughs> on the, the red coyotes or the, the blue jackrabbits, for sure, which was kind of fun. They got a bunch of people drafted, um, the jackrabbits did, um, which was really, really cool. I'm not saying we're better. But. Yeah, for sure. So um, I know you were down at the University of Iowa for a little while. Is that correct? Yeah, I just came from there. Okay, for sure. And Iowa has one of the coolest college sports traditions of all time with the the Iowa Wave. Can you tell people who are unfamiliar with the Iowa Wave what it is and kind of how it got started? Yeah, back in uh, 2017, right after we finished the Children's Hospital there, which uh, is so so tall that it towers, and it's right next to, the hospital is right next to Kinnick Stadium there, the foot where they play football. And the upper floors of the children's hospital actually look down into the stadium. So uh, you can watch the game and the kids there that are uh, having treatments for various illnesses can actually watch the games. And so someone on social media, I believe, uh, suggested uh, that we do something. And then the announcer at the end of the first quarter did it um, kind of on a whim is what I understand the first time. And it was a hit. And it's been that way ever since. So at the end of the first quarter, everyone uh, looks up towards the children's hospital and, and waves. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So it did start just on social media, just on kind of someone thought, hey, this would be cool, and the announcer ran with it, and now it's this huge thing that's kind of a real heartwarming thing at the end of the first quarter of every single football game. It's really neat, and it's neat to see the sportsmanship, the other teams. Several other teams actually will come in early and even tour the hospital and uh, get a chance for the players to meet the kids. So it's, it's been a great thing. Oh, really? That's really cool. So I know you said you, you did your undergrad for pharmacy. When you came you know, into college your freshman year, were you like, I'm going to be a pharmacist? That was plan number one. That was plan A. And then how did it shift as you kind of went through and, and decided to continue on with your education and journey? Yeah, I was dual majored in chemistry as well. I did my research on the chemistry side, and that had me involved with more... Um, uh, an opportunity to work with PhD students 
And so I considered that route for a while along the way, getting into um, medicinal chemistry and making drugs. Yeah. And uh, so I considered that option for a while along the way too. And then I had an opportunity to, as part of pharmacy school, to do uh, clinical rotations. And one of those was with Dr. Rick Holm, who is a famous physician here in the state who unfortunately just recently passed away. And he, he turned out to be just a, um, a great mentor and friend uh, to me and guided my career more towards medicine. Okay, for sure. So then your, your pharmacy was your undergrad, then your, your postgraduate studies, that was, I know you talked about your clinicals a little bit there, but did, was that still focused in pharmacy as well? It was yeah. At the time, it was a five-year program. It's changed. That's how long ago it was. It's a it's a different program now. But at the time, it was a five-year bachelor program, and the last year was devoted to uh, more or more devoted to clinical practice at that time. So that got you out into the community. I did a rotation at the Brookings Hospital there, and that's where I met Dr. Holm, and that's how he got me involved more on the medicine side. For sure. Was your clinicals how long were they? Were they six weeks, eight weeks? If you can remember, I don't want to put you on the spot. There. It was many years ago. It, they, it seemed like they were there were a series of them, and it seemed like we did a couple of months in the hospital, and then a couple of months in retail settings, and then we had to go to Sioux Falls as well for some rotations down there. So uh, they, they moved us around quite a bit and gave us quite a bit of exposure. So that's where I had a chance to work with some other docs as well. And by the time I had finished with those rotations, I'd pretty well decided that. I would be heading towards the medical route. Yeah, absolutely. I know you touched on uh, kind of the frustrations to get you into the admin side of things. Was there a moment in time where you were like something clicked and you were like, that right there is why I would want to be on the admin side of things and affect change in a different way? No, it was probably a slower process, I think, of uh, coming to realize how uh, the country had the payment system primarily set up for, um, for health care and how much work we do on our end uh, administratively to try to meet uh, a number of demands. Some of those regulatory demands are designed with safety uh, in mind, and those are good. We need those kind of things uh, built in uh, to all of our industries here in our country. But on the other hand, a lot of those are burdensome, and they're really designed uh, to help the payment system work, not so much patient care. And that was probably the most frustrating thing for me to learn uh, as, uh, as a new, new doc uh, getting out of residency. And I think I was also very fortunate to, in my practice, I was recruited to stay uh, in, in Iowa where I went for residency. I was recruited to stay in Des Moines and just was very lucky to be uh, partnered with some very um, wise and influential mentors uh, who uh, directed me towards more of a, uh, a broader view of uh, social responsibility in medicine, I guess. Absolutely. So you've been at Monument Health now for two years, right around two years? Two years. Two yep. years. Awesome. So when you came, we were Rapid City Regional Health, and then the name change occurred. And obviously a name change is a lot more than just a fancy, you know. So can you talk about some of the other things that accompany that shift with the name and, and kind of all the stuff that went into that? The biggest thing has to do with our just complete restructuring of our organizational system. When the leadership changed, particularly, there was uh, an opportunity for us to put in a Mayo-type system where we have physician leaders paired with administrative executives at all levels of the organization. And that's referred to as a dyadic model, and Mayo has used that model for years. And that's the model that, um, that I wanted to bring here, and I was very excited to have the opportunity to do that. I think the timing was right, and we continue to see a change in our culture as a result of that. 
Yeah, for sure. So obviously Mayo Clinic is is a, a really big thing. Me being from Minnesota, um, too, obviously they're a na- nationwide thing, but that's a that's a big thing. Um, what are the benefits of the dyadic model um, that you say Mayo does so successfully? Um, I know you said they work together, but what benefit does that provide over a different type of model? Yeah, it really puts the needs of the patient first, and that's been Mayo's model since they started, and the opportunity to have the uh, frontline uh, staff, nurses, uh, doctors represented through their physician leadership uh, directly uh, in all decisions really creates the major difference I think you see in organizations that don't have that sort of input. For instance, there's no way we could have stood up the type of major uh, emergency system we needed to stand up for this COVID-19 response had we not had that uh, collaboration in place already. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd be totally remiss not to talk and touch on COVID-19 right now. Obviously, I don't want to make it um, the whole conversation, but we definitely need to touch on it. Um, what is your planning as Monument Health and, and across, you know, all your different clinics and hospitals and different buildings? What does that planning look like here in Western South Dakota? We really, again, we our structure that we built, uh, you know, as most organizational structures are built for the business uh, as usual or the business at hand. This was not business as usual. This was a major shift in our focus uh, towards conserving supplies because we have a national, actually international supply shortage that has greatly affected our ability to, to prepare. And as we see in those uh, unfortunate cities where they've had the uh, larger numbers of patients coming in, can really affect your ability to protect your workers uh, in those in those situations. And so we've been blessed with a little bit of time uh, uh, to prepare, and our I think our community's done a, a fantastic job. Hopefully we'll never have the type of surge that we've seen in some of these other places because of those actions. But uh, definitely seeing that was a concern, and so supplies were a major issue for us. The other major issue uh, were was capacity, just hospital beds. That was the other problem that we see in those cities that are being overrun is they just didn't have enough beds, particularly ICU beds and those ICU beds that have uh, ability to have ventilatory support for the patients who need it. And that was our primary objective. And so we stood up our uh, both a clinical team and an administrative team specially focused on the COVID-19 crisis. We uh, meet, continue to meet every day. This is the week, I think, eight or starting week nine now of twice a day meetings, including weekends, uh, where we have the clinical team meet first and then give uh, clinical recommendations and advice to the administrative team that meets right after that. So it's a great way to keep connected and make sure that we're getting the information uh, just out to all of our Monument Health employees on a daily basis. For sure. So it does sound like supplies, um, you know, PPE supplies, and then um, beds are going to be the big issue. So obviously we're doing really good right now. I believe from my last uh, time I looked, it's like 11 confirmed positive cases here in Pennington County um, with a couple scattered around throughout the hills and, and other places in western South Dakota. What does that look like? I know we're doing a really good job, but if we do see a spike potentially, um, hospital beds, I know there's been talk of you know creating more hospital beds. How does that happen? We have put in hundreds of, actual, of new beds. We have, uh, we're fortunate to have shelled space from all of our construction. So our plan was not to build that out uh, for some time and to do so obviously with the input from our uh, community and our physicians and our board on the best use of that space. 
For now, though, our ability to uh, use that as temporary space has turned out to be very fortunate. And so we've got that space on campus close to uh, all of our caregivers and our physicians and also with the ability to uh, run uh, oxygen and things like that, electricity, things that you need to actually take care of people that would have been very difficult had we had to do that all off campus in our surge capacity planning. And so the ability to add those beds right on campus was very fortunate for us. Absolutely. So obviously there is a lot of information um, out there on COVID-19 and um, most people go to the internet for it. Um, but a thing that I think it lo- gets lost kind of in the shuffle of everything is the really just basic, like what do you do, like the need to knows. So what are the like need to knows for people about COVID-19? Like is a mask effective? We've we flip-flopped on that, at least the internet has. Like, at first it wasn't, now it is. Is the mask effective? How, what is proper social distancing? Kind of some of that stuff that people need to know. Yeah, I think the thing about public masking that's been most confusing is, uh, it, is it is definitely effective in helping to uh, trap particles that might leave you and spread to others. Now, does it protect you if you're wearing a mask from others? That's the part that they're not as sure about. Also, there's hygiene uh, protocol around putting your mask off and on that most of us don't follow. Uh, We tend to grab it with our uh, mask with our hands and pull it down in order to eat, drink, talk, and then we put it back up with with those same hands that have probably been touching other things in our environment without necessarily uh, cleaning them between each, each time we touch the mask. Also, you know, do we store the mask in a, in a you know, proper storage uh, container to keep it clean you know, what, what, when we're not wearing it? And you see, I see a lot of, uh, on TV, e- interviews even of medical people at work with their mask pulled down around their neck or off to the side. And those are the kind of behaviors that the CDC was concerned about initially and, and remain concerned about, and that those masks can actually become somewhat of a risk in that sense if we're not careful. Uh, so the, the decision to uh, promote the idea of, of cloth masks in public came with a lot of discussion, I know, at the national level. And we've put out some specific information on our website about how to, how to properly put it, take a mask on and off and how to properly launder and care for that mask between wearings. So that was the biggest controversy around the masking. It does definitely help uh, prevent the spread, though, of droplets from those that might be infected out to, the, to others. And so there's definitely some value in that. Absolutely. So um, obviously you see a lot of different kinds of masks, you know, different, there's cloth masks and there's, you know, more of the traditional looking ones. And there's some really big giant ones too. Does it, the mask, like does the material of the mask matter or is it just like having a face covering is beneficial? Having a face covering is beneficial for uh, helping to stop the droplets that would exit you and, and potentially infect others. Those other masks you're talking about that get more sophisticated, they are, some of those are designed to filter and actually prevent uh, outside uh, uh, germs and viruses from getting to you. And those more sophisticated masks are, are also hot, uncomfortable, and uh, have very low compliance rates, even among healthcare workers uh, t- who have to wear those consistently. It's very, very challenging to do that. So the idea that people would do that in society on a day-to-day basis, especially with summer coming and, and yep. uh, getting hot and activity starting are uh, unlikely. Not to mention those are the masks when you hear about uh, short supplies. It's some of that material that's actually in short supply. Okay, absolutely. So social distancing, we hear, you know, social and physical distancing, six feet. What does that, like, where, I know they have to draw the line somewhere at what distance, what, like, scientific reason is it for six feet um, with the coronavirus? 
based on the size of droplets that would typically exit someone who is talking, uh, coughing, sneezing, um, those droplets are uh, of a certain size that they tend to fall uh, over time, just like if you throw a ball and it drops uh, as it extends out further from you. Well, your droplets do that as well. And so six feet is considered the minimum distance to be safe. Now, is it possible? And we've all seen, I think, some of the hard sneezes that extend beyond on the internet where they've done slow motion pictures that allow you to see the droplets better. Uh, And can they extend? Certainly in in certain circumstances, they can. Again, the recommendations for either wearing a mask or making sure that you cough or sneeze into your your elbow or or a a handkerchief or napkin as opposed to uh, out, out in the public area. But six feet is considered the distance at which most of those droplets would settle out. Okay. So then I guess my final thing on this would be if you start to feel under the weather, is it just stay home and and protect yourself, protect others? Is that just precaution number one? Absolutely. And then, you know, ultimately, and I've said many times, the test, the testing is good for society as a whole. And so you should definitely call in, either call your doctor or call our, our nurse triage line to uh, review your symptoms and be considered for testing. It's important that we know where this uh, virus uh, is in our community in terms of its spread. The, the treatment for you, however, uh, is ba- really based on your symptoms. And so, like you said, if you have a relatively minor cold-type illness or bronchitis-type illness that you would normally stay at home and protect yourself, take care of yourself with uh, chicken soup and so forth, that's what you should still do. If you're sicker and need to be seen, though, you should definitely come in uh, and and be seen. All of our patients for some time who've had significant symptoms and risk factors for COVID have been tested, and most recently we're uh, getting more tests uh, testing availability. That was one of those national shortage areas that I'm sure you've, uh, everyone's heard about. And we've had the opportunity lately to obtain more testing materials. And so we've been able to liberalize our testing for uh, all people with symptoms. Okay, that's awesome. Can you, I, I know I said last thing, but I got one more thing. Yeah. Um, if, can you walk someone through the process of they're not feeling well and to the actual being tested? Because I know you have to go through a pre-screening process and everything like that. So can you, like if someone is not feeling well, can you walk them through kind of what it would look like to get tested? Yeah, I think primary, there are some symptoms that are more specific than others uh, to COVID. In general, we talk about influenza-like illness symptoms or upper respiratory symptoms. Well, of course, those are very common. Uh, a couple months ago, very common, uh, and we still see some flu and other bugs that cause uh, similar symptoms. Now it's allergy season, and we're starting to see patients with, with seasonal allergies. You know, your healthcare provider or a nurse on the triage line can help you kind of sort through that. So that's probably the first step is talking to, uh, to a healthcare professional uh, who can help you sort through a little bit what those symptoms are. Uh, you know, they'll ask you about your history. Um, if you normally this time of year have sinus trouble and you're getting that same kind of sinus headache again and you don't have any fever and you don't have any cough, chances that, are, that it's COVID are pretty slim. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you've been exposed to someone, if you've traveled, all those things will raise your risk. So it's really an individual decision to be tested. Now, in addition, if you think uh, you've been exposed after the fact and you want to just find out, and we've had several hundred who have done that so far since we've started offering the Mayo antibody test, you can do that as well. You have to have been exposed or had symptoms for uh, at least 10 days prior in order for that test to be, to be meaningful. Uh, but we have several uh, in our community that are availing themselves of that. And again, that is very useful from a public information epidemiology standpoint. It doesn't actually affect uh, any recommendations for you as a patient, however. We hope that there's some lasting immunity 
from having been exposed or having had the illness, but we don't really know that yet. And so that's the concern about that test is that people think that if they have a positive antibody test that they're able to go resume normal activity and uh, drop all the the CDC recommendations, and that is definitely not the case. We just don't know yet. Absolutely. So that sounds good. I know it is definitely going to be a developing type of situation and um, things that it's new for everybody, even even people in the medical fields as well. So um, I think we are doing a really good job, just like you said earlier as well, especially here um, Western South Dakota. We're really, really doing well, and hopefully we can continue to flatten our already pretty flat curve. So uh, obviously you've been here for two years, like we said earlier, and we've seen a lot of changes um, just even before all this uh, coronavirus stuff. Is it, would you say coronavirus or COVID, or am I like, this does not matter, is it apples and oranges? Coronavirus is the virus. COVID-19 is actually the disease caused by the virus. Okay. But they're so used pretty interchangeably. Pretty, okay, sounds good. I just want to make sure I'm not like totally speaking out of turn. Um, so yeah, but anyway, we've seen a lot of changes. Like we, we talked on the, the name change and the, kind of the, the organizational structural change as well. What are some of the things that you're like really proud of that have, you guys have accomplished in the last two years at Monument Health? I think, like I said before, arranging the physician governance. I'm very proud of that. I, I can't imagine um, uh, that we have moved as fast as we have. Uh, we've changed the culture quickly. We set a goal to increase, uh, for instance, our number of self-reported um, safety incidents so that we could fix them, so that we could get better at it. And that's a national standard that's been in place for some years in other places. And honestly, here, we really didn't have the trust between the medical staff, uh, the caregivers, uh, the administration, and the community to get that done. And w- my anticipation was that would take us, um, even with the changes, a couple of years, uh, maybe longer, uh, to get where we got in about two months so, uh, or really a month, right after we started doing it last year, we had a tremendous response. And that just tells me that uh, the trust is increasing, that the uh, concerns that people have about um, their ability to uh, be heard and make an impact um, are, are uh, being realized now through this governance process. And I'm, I couldn't be more proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been here in Rapid City for about two to three years now, too. And I think there's been a, a shift in, in the community's view of the healthcare system here as well, which I think is really, really important and uh, really cool to see. Because like you said, it has been a quick turnaround as well. This That's typically not a fast process from what you would think, right? Culture is hard to change. And there's a lot of factors that make culture hard to change in our industry specifically. A lot of them have to do with the regulatory uh, and, and payment issues that I mentioned earlier. But with our Uh, physicians and staff rallying and working together the way they have, we've made some tremendous improvements. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we talked, you are, you know, went to school in Brookings and and USD and then spent some time in Iowa. And anyone who listens to this podcast a little bit knows that I'm from Minnesota and you can probably tell by my voice a little bit as well. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) It's, hey, the Gophers did well on draft night, I think. Did they? We got uh, Tyler Johnson got drafted and a couple guys. The Gophers did it. You know, they've been a disappointment for quite some time. So last year was a big improvement. You had a good year, definitely. Hopefully we can keep rowing the boat. Yeah, Yeah, always good to see the Big Ten doing well. Exactly, exactly. Anybody but the SEC, that's for sure. There you go. Um, So, but yeah, we're both kind of implants to the Black Hills. Is there like a favorite Black Hills activity that you like to do with your family or or something that you kind of got into now that you've moved out here and maybe recreation is a little bit different? Um, the thing I'm doing that's new for me is mountain biking. Oh, yeah. So I've had a history of road biking. I've done triathlons in the past, and I've done uh, various road races and adventure races, but I've never, I've never had the opportunity in Iowa to really get into mountain biking much. And so 
that's something new and it is extremely challenging. Uh, it's, uh, there's also not a lot of air up here compared to Iowa. And so that was a shock too when I first moved here, getting used to it yep. now, uh, living at elevation, but definitely um, enjoying learning how to mountain bike. Yeah, that's, I've never mountain biked. I can touch on the air thing, though. I remember when I first moved out here, I was like, oh, I'm going to go for a run. And I just, like, drove up into the hills a little bit and went for a run. And after about 200 yards, I was just like, I couldn't breathe. I felt like an elephant was just sitting on my chest. So that's definitely something to get used to. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite with, I mean, I don't want to, like, flood your favorite place with mountain bikers, but do you have a favorite place that you like to go um, that you enjoy mountain biking at? Well, there's so much. There's so many uh, trails around here. There's more single track here than um, I think I've I've uh, found in, in places I've visited in Colorado. So very impressive um, uh, ability to do that here. Uh, Storm Mountain is close there by by Rockerville uh, to where I live, and so that's that's usually my go-to. The go-to there. Yeah, it's nice to have spots really close by for sure. All right, this is kind of a tricky question, and I know it's like really ah, Mount Rushmore. Is it a tourist trap or is it not? Like, what's your opinion as an outsider? Like, you come in, like, is it cool? Is it not cool? Because I've had some people I bring in Mount Rushmore, they think it's the best thing in the world. And I have other people who are like, I would rather do something else while drug is more interesting than this. So where do you stand on Mount Rushmore? I think it's amazing. And uh, I highly recommend that people see it. It's iconic, really. Uh, f- uh, when I, we travel, as we have a chance to uh, travel uh, the country or, or e- and even in, uh, a little bit uh, out of the country, when people ask where you're from and you say South Dakota, um, you know, that, that's a, that, that doesn't really answer the question. And then, and then if you try to get more specific and say Rapid City, they really don't know what you're talking yep. about. But if you say Mount Rushmore or, or the faces, uh, everyone knows. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, in Europe, uh, I've been to New Zealand, and, and, and anywhere I go when I describe where I live, and I'm very fortunate to have a, a view of that right off my deck, and and get a chance to see that uh, every day, and that's it's it's amazing, and I and I think it's uh, part of what identifies us as a country. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm all on board. I love Mount Rushmore. The one person I brought to Mount Rushmore who didn't enjoy it was I in high school. Um, we had a German foreign exchange student, and he came and, and we became really good friends. He came out and visited me in the Black Hills, and we brought him to Mount Rushmore, and he wasn't interested in it because to us you know it's George Washington Teddy Roosevelt Abraham Lincoln you know these great iconic presidents to him they're just like guys you know because he didn't have that if they were like the chancellors you know the former chancellors of Germany I think he might have thought it was cool but it was like he didn't understand how cool Teddy Roosevelt was like he knew who he was like he knew George Washington like but it wasn't like so that was the one guy where he's like I don't really care for it but otherwise I think people are like I'm glad I went it's very interesting um yeah. yeah, like you said, an iconic American thing that you everyone should see at least one point in their life. Yeah, and we have, you know, literally millions that come through every summer, so I think that speaks for itself. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So that sounds good. I think that's all we have for today. I'm glad we've, we've made it short, sweet, and, and to the point, but I think very, very interesting and um, good information for people. So if there's anything I didn't touch on, um, please say it now before we log off the air. Uh, no, I appreciate it. If there's more information that I can share uh, specifically related to the current crisis, um, I'll be happy to come back and do so. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back on if needed, but hopefully we can keep everything under control and we're doing a good job. So, But hey, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.